0: Hey folks, you're listening to the Partially Examined Life. This is a very special bonus episode. It is the after show for episodes 121 and 122, both of which were on Augustine. Our host is Danny Lobel. Wes Alwyn is on it. We've got James Wetzel who is an Augustine scholar, has written several books about Augustine, including Augustine and the Limits of Virtue, Augustine, A Guide to the Perplexed, and Parting Knowledge, Essays After Augustine. Also on the call are Partially Examined Life listeners Tara Lee Bell, Moog Sahu, who hosts his own podcast, Symptomatic Redness, and new guy Scott Anderson. I think it's a great discussion, and in the spirit of the -the off-the-cuff nature of these after shows, we're posting it with minimal editing. It was actually recorded today, September 6th. So no, it's not going to sound all slick and edited like one of our regular podcasts. If we're going to make an academic analogy, you could say that our regular episodes are like the lectures. And this is the discussion section. Although, ironically, the discussion section, in this case, is when the actual prof shows up. So I hope you like it. Our plans regarding future after shows are always in a state of flux, but you should know that this is just the most visible manifestation of our Partially Examined Life, not school infrastructure, where you can sign up for groups to talk about texts or old Partially Examined Life episodes or philosophical films or anything else you want. So go check out PartiallyExaminedLife.com for details. And here's Wes.
1: We're joined today by Jim Wetzel. Jim, you're chair of the philosophy department at Villanova. Is that right?
2: Um, well, I'm in the philosophy department. I have an endowed chair in Augustinian Thought. I so see. It's not an administrative chair. Thank God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, Jim, yeah, just if, if you want to give us a little more of your background and tell us how how uh, you became involved with this, uh, this after show, and then we can get introductions from the others who are on.
2: Well, the involvement actually was through a friend of mine, Miles Hollingworth, who's a great writer at Owen Augustine, he's living in Italy these days. My interest in Augustine goes way back to when I was an undergraduate. Partly I read the Confessions in the Pine Coffin translation, was greatly annoyed by it. I <laughs> uh, didn't really understand why this rated in the canon of Western greats and out of sheer stubbornness. I stuck with it and Augustine more or less got his hooks in me. And because I've always been interested in the problematic relationship between religion and philosophical thought, he became a natural companion for me over the years. I taught for most of my career at Colgate University's uh, liberal college in upstate New York. Uh, I've been at Villanova since uh, 2005. Villanova is an Augustinian institute. And so I have this weird position of actually having the chair that's endowed by the order so, we all like to talk a lot about augustine at, at Villanova, <laughs> and uh, i'm actually looking for occasions to talk less but i'll, I'll at least hang out for a couple hours today.
1: What does it mean to say an institution is augustinian
2: well i mean it's uh I, I mean you know, Catholic institutions are often associated with a particular orders some institutions are, are are lay run some are run by orders the jesuits are are big in the in the Loyola system they are also v uh, c is also Jesuit. Villanova is Order of St. Augustine. It was founded in the 19th century by Augustinian monks. There's only one other college in the country that's Augustinian, that's Merrimack. Uh, The Augustinians in general are are not heavily involved in in teaching orders, uh, at least not in the States. St. Thomas of Villanova, who's uh, the patron saint of Villanova, actually was a bishop, Spanish bishop, who was known for his work in hospitals and orphanages. But Villanova is a major university in the United States, and it is um, our president is an Augustinian priest. I am not a priest.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right, so should we have everyone else briefly introduce themselves? I will start, and I'll just... Uh, I'm Wes Alwyn, obviously, with the uh, podcast, and i just get brief introductions from everyone else.
3: Sure. I'm Amog, and uh, I'm a undergrad at the University of Toronto studying philosophy.
1: Great. Scott?
4: Uh, hi, I'm Scott. I'm here in St. Louis, Missouri. We got first time on one of these... Um, I have, in my wretchedness, no credentials to speak of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are you in an Augustinian apartment? Or, uh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tara Lee?
5: Yes, my name is Tara Lee. Well, I guess my old church was pretty Augustine influenced, although not Roman Catholic, it was Anglican. And I just studied philosophy on my own, and I guess this is like my, maybe my third after show, something like that.
1: All right, Danny, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you. Oh, you?
6: I'm Danny LaBelle. I've been hosting these after shows. I'm a comedian. I'm into philosophy. I host a podcast called Modern Day Philosophers, where comedians talk philosophy. I'm a fan of the Partially Examined Life.
1: I think you have something new to plug, don't you? Or is that um?
6: Oh yeah. Well, as of October 1st, I'll be doing a show with CBS called The Mostly Bull Market, where comedians try to predict uh. Financial advice. (laughs) I'd go
1: without. I'm I'm sure that's going to make a lot of people wealthy.
6: Yeah. (laughs) If my finances are any indicator, I would say no. (laughs) But uh, the fact that it got a big laugh from everybody is good. Just that makes me excited. Augustine, let's jump into it. What do you think? (laughs)
3: I found him really interesting, much more than I expected to I thought my kind of knowledge of philosophy is, there's a massive, there's sort of Plato and Socrates and the Greeks, and then massive gap, and then Descartes, and then it was good to plug, it was good to plug that uh, medieval philosophy gap, when Augustine was. Can I ask why you didn't think he'd be fascinating? I, it was more prejudice than anything. It was about, oh, well, you know, is this is, uh, when we do sort of the intellectual history of that period, the way it's sort of told to us is that, oh, there are all these fuddy-duddy religious people who had basically sort of like God-centric metaphysics, and we shouldn't read them because Descartes is basically. Uh, well, obviously, that's wrong, but, you know, it was good. Uh, I got started with Augustine rather than Anselm or anyone like that, and I'm, I'm happy that I did.
6: Yeah. And what were other people's yeah. impressions?
5: I've always had a soft spot for Augustine. I think partially because I've always really gotten guilt (laughs) and in like a way, not even in the way that like I think non-religious people are like, oh, you have a lot of guilt, but in the sense of like wanting to take responsibility for myself and being sort of shocked at how few people want to take responsibility for themselves.
6: By the um, way, you do have a vote for Jesus sticker behind you, so I would think... No,
5: isn't that great? <laughs>
6: a you guy know. who's talking about the inner Jesus <laughs> might be a little bit more appealing to
3: you.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Prevent range fires as well, yes. But I've always had a soft spot for him. I think also because I have sort of a, a perverse... Like, whatever the current cultural trend is, I just sort of like fighting with people about it, and so since secularism is definitely sort of the dominant thing in the Pacific Northwest, I just sort of like to... It sort of drives me even further towards the religious side.
6: (laughs) You're a counterculture girl, you know, that's... uh, I guess. It is like a counterculture. It's interesting because I've talked about this before on my um, Modern Day Philosophers podcast about how, like, counterculture used to kind of be, like, rejecting religion, rejecting God, and, like, and now that's become so, like, mainstream that, like, counterculture now is kind of being like, let me check out this God stuff, you know? It's yeah. flipped in that way.
5: And it, it depends a lot, like, what sort of subcultures of America you're in. Like, I can imagine that – I and I've been – you know, I've spent a little bit of time in the Midwest and the South, and whenever I go there, I find myself <laughs> expressing myself, like – being way more secular and way more questioning of religion, and then I get around secular people, and I'm like, I don't know about you guys. So I've always had a soft spot for Augustine, just because of that.
6: I can relate to that.
3: Being that-
5: <laughs> um,
6: cool. We got one surprised, surprisingly pleasant one that knew that she would like it and had a soft spot. Anybody? Uh, anybody
4: in the other camp? I don't know about another camp. I will just say that um, I think a sentiment that was kind of echoed on the on the, the proper podcast, I was quite surprised with how modern and how relatable much of it, it sounded.
6: Yeah, me too. I found like a lot of it really kind of spoke to me. Uh, what, well, let's start with you. What specifically did you feel was very relatable?
4: Scott. Just generically, I kind of expected it to sound a lot more of kind of arcane, Kind of like the pear tree kind of stuff that no one would really, you know, relate to. Now, I affected it to, you know, most of the examples to be in that vein. And whereas a lot of it really focused on what people really do feel is what they miss the mark on today and, you know, Christian uh, language for, and particularly around sex, of course. And, you know. Well,
6: the guys talked a lot in the podcast about like motivation. Like if Augustine question people's motivation are you doing this for the right reason is it selfish is it is it godly is it are you are you trying to be like god that kind of stuff kind of spoke to me like thinking about what really motivates a person what their intentions really are two people could do the same action but with com- completely opposite intention and and you don't know mm. and uh, that's dictated by your inner morality right now he kind of grappled with whether or not you're doing it for the sake of god am i right wes
1: whether he was doing it for the sake of god well yeah i mean there are points in the text where he's so i can't i can't think of a specific example right now where he's uh you got to
6: go back to his stuff on memory
1: so so there yeah there's always the danger of vanity sort of creeping in right even when you when you think you're you're doing something for a uh for the right reason the, the question is you know so you see frequent places in the text where um he's sort of invoking god as the as the reason for everything and of course there's always the danger of of losing sight of that fundamental foundation but uh, jim maybe you uh maybe you can say something something about that
2: the invocation of god it always surprises me that anyone would find that of much content, and I include Augustine in in that camp. And and actually, I, I don't think he appeals to God as an ultimate explanatory principle. He would love to be literal about God, but how well do we understand really what the nature of being is in and of itself? So I don't think the appeals to God for him are revelation in the sense of information. He really writes with the awareness that in the deepest way, he's still learning the meaning of his own words. And God is really that sense that he always has something more to learn. I mean, he is a great psychologist. I don't mean that in a sense that you know, he studied psychology, but he was very aware of the complexities of human emotions and their contradictions. And what was unusual about him for his day, and he sets the agenda for medieval philosophy the way that we conceptualize the history of philosophy in the West. So I think that's grossly misleading. In his case, he's really a late antique philosopher, and the philosophy he's inherited is basically a Romanized form of stoicism, where the goal in life is to get it together to the point where what's most important in your life, you have an absolute hold on. He found out a very attractive ideal for most of his life, uh, and he came to think ultimately, that it was impossible and that it was undesirable. And you'll notice in the confessions, he's really quite preoccupied with grief. And actually, this came out in some of the podcasts, which I really, by the way, like, but I didn't listen to, to, I didn't get a chance to listen to all four hours. But what I did hear, uh, I really found really quite fascinating. And he is actually struggling actually to affirm grief within human life in a way that I think is highly unusual for his time where our liabilities as human beings to love what it is that we will inevitably lose fragments the self in ways that we will never put together. And our imagination for thinking that we can put it together is actually worse than the grief itself. And so there is a kind of an unresolved or or open quality to the emotional life that Augustine very much uh, is in favor for. That's why, although he's a religious figure, he has resonances in in writers like Dostoevsky, Beckett. I mean, he really has an appeal that tends to defy our usual desire to divide the world up into confessional lines, secular, sacred, Christian, non-Christian. Uh, Of course, he saw himself as a Catholic, but he wasn't born that way. And in his Catholicism, he really recognized that that wasn't, uh, you know, a framework for simply resolving all questions. It was a framework for asking questions in a certain kind of community.
3: One of the things that I was interested in was sort of an overarching theme throughout both episodes, the the theme in the Confessions and in his epistemology, his sort of emphasis on, like, humility, right, in, in all sorts of ways that seems to creep up. And um, when he discusses the fact that, you know, um, he has this kind of, this, you guys talked about this on podcast, he has this kind of empathy, right, as a source of knowledge. In the Hebrew, like the social, uh, he's a kind of social account of how we get told what we know and stuff like that. And he also has sort of, in the confessions, obviously, humility is a key theme throughout, where, oh, we finite beings, God infinite being, and so on and so on. I wonder if people thought about that.
2: I actually think it's an important theme. And the temptation is to think that humility for Augustine is just an add-on to philosophy. Like, do philosophy without worrying too much about humility, but when you're trying to communicate it, be nice and open about it. I actually think it goes really to the nature of philosophy itself. I mean, we have this idea of reasoning often where we make sense of things on our own, and then we vie with other people to sort of hold on to what it is we've tried to make sense of. Augustine's model, and it explains something about why he's so fascinated with Scripture, is he's trying to understand an intelligence that he believes is much greater than his own. That requires a kind of openness or receptivity that I think goes along with humility. So, and when he says that to the—he says that about his relationship to the Platonists. You know, they have a great—they have a lot of intuitions and insights that are profound— but the cultivation of humility as a virtue is not foremost. And that doesn't make them less intelligent, but it does mean that the way that they're going to use their intelligence is going to be much more limited than if they had taken the virtue of humility seriously. Well, I want to talk, Jay, what you were talking about a little
6: earlier about Augustine was the attachment, how it makes no sense that humans attach themselves to things that they'll ultimately lose. Because that's like an idea that I... I can relate to in my own life right? because I have dogs, but I also have a tortoise, and the dogs are much more affectionate, obviously, than the tortoise. I don't think I'm shocking anyone when I tell you it's easier to get attached to dogs than a tortoise, but the tortoise is going to outlive the dogs probably by about four times their lifespan at least, and sometimes I wonder, Like, maybe I should stop being attached to these dogs. Maybe I should really just do everything I can to just attach myself to the tortoise. You know, because it just makes more rational, logical sense than setting myself up for massive heartbreak. I always see it as, like, planting little emotional minds in your life. Like, a dog's lifespan is, what, between 10 to 16 years? So my either in 10 or in 5 or 6 years from now, I have planted a, an emotional mine in my life that is going to explode and it's going to be horrible. And it's completely illogical and irrational that I would set myself up for grief in that way. But a little bit to what Jay was touching on Augustine saying, we will never understand that, right? You can't understand why we do that. And We create. What was the word you used, Jay? We create what to deal with it? You said it so so well, Jay.
1: It's uh, Jim. Oh,
2: I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was waiting. I, I didn't want. I did. I didn't want to interrupt Jay. Um, <laughs> I missed the introduction. <laughs> well, I, I thought i would be very rude and a lack of humility if I. <laughs> um, By the
6: way, can I be reintroduced to Jim <laughs> since I missed his intro? <laughs>
2: Hi, Dan. I'm Jim. I'm I, I <laughs> Bill Um What you're saying is very profound. And of course, you think of it, like, you know, I, I have dogs too. I, I also have two children. I mean, I've never had a sense of my own mortality as profound as when the day that my first child, my daughter was born. Now, look, I'm not an Avenger or superhero. I, I'm, I'm not thrilled with the thought of my own death either. But there's something actually more palpable in your experience when you start having attachments that you realize that uh, they're going to take a chunk with you when they go, right? And Augustine's very much aware of the temptation to try to hedge your bets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think actually this has a lot to do with his thinking about sexuality. We can get into, uh, he's a mess on this, but but he's an interesting mess. I mean, unreflectively, we tend to think of life as a quest to make something partial whole. That's what our appetites tell us. If we don't pay any attention whatsoever to the body, it's eventually going to signal some needs. Hey, you're hungry, you're sleepy, you've got to move, you're sore, you, you've got to move forward. If we think that that form of desire, which Augustine would have understood as concupiscence, and the Greeks would have referred to it as appetite, is really the fundamental form of desire, we're going to think of knowledge as satisfying an appetite for information. Augustine thinks that's actually profoundly wrong. The part of us that knows is the part of us that's willing to see without an agenda of having to consume, without having to make it part of ourselves. This is what we learn in relationships of love. I'm not sure. I'll, leave it, I'll put this out there for you guys. Whether or not we could live in a world where we never had any liability to suffering or difficulty or loss, and would we know what love means? I mean, I really think this is the way that Augustine's obsessed with the Genesis story, and I think this in many ways with the Genesis story mythologically sets up. You can stay in Eden, and what you have to forego is knowledge. (laughs) Or you can have knowledge, but at that point, your life is really caught up in the possibilities of, of loss in the way that it really wasn't before. And this, I think, is quite relatable. I think it's really at the center of human experience. And one of the ways we try to to cope with it is we have images of ways of loving that make us seem more invulnerable. You got on the podcast. You guys were talking very interestingly about the pear tree episode. Well, by the way, is symbolic. I mean, the stuff about getting all worked up about uh, having a, stealing a piece of fruit is ridiculous, unless you realize that it's really an an image of of the forbidden fruit. By the time Augustine gets through his agonized analysis of it, he really comes to. I think the most profound admission that really what he wants to love, he wants to be able to love the way that he assumes God loves without any possibility of loss. But the only way for a human being to love without possibility of loss is to love nothing. And that, Mm. my friends, is the definition of sin.
6: To love nothing is the definition of sin?
2: To love nothing for the sake of a self that will never experience loss or fragmentation, that's the involution of selfhood that he associates as behind sin and it has its roots finally, not just, he it, it has its roots partially in pride, but I think more profoundly it has its roots in fear.
3: What, what about loving God, though? Isn't the, considering God is infinite, there's no possibility of loss there, right? Or is it that we can't access God because he's outside of space and time? Is the, is the loss the, the inability to truly get to know him?
2: Well, I, and I think if you just follow the sort of the, you know, at least the surface logic of the theological language, Augustine believes almost as an axiom that God doesn't suffer violence, and so insofar as God loves, if, insofar if you're beloved by God, you'll never be lost, because the losing would actually interject violence upon God. But then, in order really to understand that, you'd have to understand how it is that God loves. And Augustine's only image of that is through the incarnate God, uh, who he really insists in the confessions that elsewhere had real emotions, real grief, real difficulty, real anxiety, real pain, real suffering, and a real death. Hmm. So our imagination for power, I think from Augustine's point of view, is really childlike you know, when it comes to love God. That doesn't mean we don't have the imperative to love God, although actually it's an imperative that's within us. It's not something that somebody gives from the outside. But it's also not like a special, like, well, you know, my normal love aren't working. I think I'm going to, like, try love of God and see how that works. There's no kind of love that isn't for Augustine, a nascent love of God.
3: Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting that Augustine comments on the different moral attitudes to the same thing, right? So when we see knowledge as a property... Um, as something to accumulate or to possess or something like that, then it's uh, wrong. But if we see knowledge as a means to the infinite or something like that, then it might be more useful in that sense. There's sort of like different presumptions of what a person is, right? It's like when you have knowledge to accumulate, your brain is this little sort of treasure chest which you put stuff in. But it's slightly Mm -hmm. different if knowledge is sort of a means means of communication almost with God or something like that. It's just, uh, I was commenting on on that difference. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like what a lot of
6: philosophers have grappled with, and it seems like from what Jim is saying, we're hearing Augustine grappling with also, is what does it mean to be loved by God? God is this infinite being. God is not, doesn't have human emotions. So if our understanding of love comes from the love of God, what does... An infinite non-human being defined as love—was I right? That being a question, there, Jim?
2: Yeah, and actually, and I think the question, "What does it mean by uh, to be loved by God?" isn't very far from the question, "What does it mean to exist?" You know, think of Augustine's basic cosmological metaphysical framework: God is being, and God creates ex nihilo out of the nothingness. That in and of itself already sets up a rather peculiar question. Well, who are we since we are neither God nor the nothing? Really, what does it mean to exist? You're asking the question, what does it mean for a being that's in some ways intertwined with nothingness? We live in time, we're finite, to actually be in some way. I think Augustine has that question in mind, and he sees it primarily as a question having to do with the difference between love, will, and desire. And we learn love is actually, I think, the liberation of desire. And that has something to do with our quest for value and being beyond the limits of the life that we perceive. He talks about that as God. So, yes, I think that's quite right.
6: So it's all like
1: that song, I want to know what love is. Uh-huh,
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> there's little, am I wrong that the, as far as the text goes, there's a much more focus on love of God than, in fact, I don't remember a single instance where he is talking about God's love of human beings. I mean, there's obviously lots of talk about love of God. But am I wrong that there's a far less focus on god's love for us in in the confessions or
2: well the whole thing is is set up as a prayer right it's a second person affair and we're kind of listening in we're invited in in an interesting way at nine and then weird things happen in the later books but he is voicing his soul's love and desire for god and what we need to be looking for as his prayer, his confession unfolds, is in what sense can we imagine that he's getting a response. Mm-hmm. And that has everything to do with how we read him. I mean, you know, his what he says of scripture is, is that uh, you, you don't get it right unless you walk away loving more intelligently than you began. And although he wrote a book, I mean, he's a young bishop at the time, and believe me, he's got plenty of enemies. He wrote a book that made him very vulnerable. It's a, it really, as a piece of apology, it sucks. And so he, at one point, will say, you know, how he hopes to be read, which is not give him a pass, but read him with the kind of desire that he has, that in these encounters we have in our relationships, to hope to come away a bit more generously minded than we were before. I mean, that's the way he really wants to be read. God's never an object. Uh, to be comprehended in the confessions, and I think really what 's remarkable about the confessions is look from 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 my point of view, and it changes, but so my point of view as of now is how extraordinary Augustine sees the great metaphysical cosmological theological themes playing through very mundane realities, and he tells us about his girlfriend. His learning of a language, his not liking to learn Greek. I mean, these are details that you just wouldn't expect would go into a philosophical self testimony. And lots of people didn't like the confessions, both on the Christian and the pagan side. But, you know, I mean, there is, you know, as I say, God never appears as, as an object, uh, he, he shows up in how you hear Augustine's voice. Hmm.
1: I mean, he he yeah. does talk, for instance, um, about being known by God. So, for instance, at the beginning of 10, yeah. let me know thee who knowest me, let me know thee even as I am known. So this is sort of the, the point I'm trying to, to make. Of God's relationship to him, I, um, unless I just simply don't remember it, I, I see more of this type of language about being known, but less about being loved.
2: But they're not separable, I think, for him.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying explicitly even, yeah. So I'm yeah. curious about, yeah. So. I keep hearing, you
6: know, I, things always remind me of different songs. So when I, that sounds like uh, Augustine doing My Sweet Lord. I really want to know it's to you. <laughs> you. want to know it's me.
2: You need to put together a tape.
6: Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll play it for my, my class. class. Lord, but it takes so long. Saint
1: Augustine, the uh, the pop album. <laughs> 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 so I think I think moving back to the question of attachment, because Jim, the way you you were giving us a more nuanced view of Augustine's thoughts on attachment than I suppose a, um, a someone who comes to this, who's first reading this might get from the book. So for instance, it might seem to a casual reader that this is really a sort of stoic call for a retreat from worldly attachments, and that the one safe thing for us to love is God, because God has that permanence and foundationality which nothing else in the world can give us, whether it's um, various types of pleasures or even human relationships. Although there are points in the text, of course, where it seems like it's okay to have to sort of realize that they are sourced in God, something like that. But there, are, you know, there's a lot in the book that seems w- where he's he seems very worried about any sort of worldly pleasure and the way in which it can distract us from God. So is he as stoic as he seems to be, or is something else going on?
2: The stoic strategy is a kind of this worldly otherworldliness, where you're not rejecting the world but you're identifying it in in such a way that your sense of self remains undamaged, you know, untorn apart. I mean, he certainly will use the language that there's no security ultimately except with God, but he he doesn't play that out, I think, in a stoic way. I mean, I I think the short answer to the question is there are some experiences of grief that are simply not to be transcended, and the confessions is remarkable for the amount of times it really focuses on the experience of grief, and and they're very different. You know, I, I think the ones that come immediately to mind for me are, are the, the scene in book four where he grieves for an un uh, a friend that he never names, and actually he's very hard on himself. That's actually failed grief. There is a short but incredibly important passage in book ten when he talks about sending his lover, his basically his wife, the mother of his child, back to Africa, that has a huge impact on him. And then there's the grief for his mother. Now, I mean, you know, he's gonna say that the life that we have now isn't ultimate. But he's gonna insist that doesn't make it important. And and I think there's some things about it that are irreducible. Irreducibly good, that scene with his mother. Yeah, he knows that she's with the Eternal. Actually, they had a trip to the Eternal before she died. So he mourns for her anyway. Does that mean that he less faithful to God? No, not at all. It means that he recognizes that the conjunction of human and divine, even in its most intimate way, doesn't overwhelm and simply turn the human into something that's eternal. So, I mean, mean, this is where I think his his Christianity is is, is really important, not as a series of dogma that he applies when he's puzzled about things, but as a reminder that the symbol that that his tradition picks for intimacy between human and divine is not of a supernatural humanity. Actually, he says in the latest work, one of his latest works is God's choosing Jesus as his adopted son is not because Jesus' humanity is any better or different than anyone else's. So what's really remarkable about him, and I think what makes him really interesting to modern psychologists and postmodern psychologists, he's just not going to insist on the integrity of the self that's not realistic. We don't live that way. And actually, insofar as we are unity, that's something that God knows from God's point of view that we can't know in this life.
1: I wanted to go back. Uh, I think we should definitely discuss integrity more, but just to the, the mourning of his friends in book four. So now I'm looking at chapter eight, section 13. So for instance, the, the, the conclusion he draws about that seems to be sort of anti-grief. So I'm quoting here, For the first grief had pierced so easily and so deep only because I had spilt out my soul upon the sand in loving a mortal man as if he were never to die. At any rate, the comfort I found in other friends and the pleasure I had with them in the things of earth did much to repair and remake me. And it was all one huge fable, one long lie, and by its adulterous caressing, my soul, which lay itching in my ears, was utterly corrupted. For my folly did not die whenever one of my friends died. So this idea of having spilt his soul upon sand, it sounds here as if he regrets the the attachment and that he would actually like to avoid grief. But Jim, it sounds like you're saying that he has a he's not simply trying to give us in with God some sort of or a retreat from worldly attachments, insurance against grief. That that grief is inevitable but somehow it's going to be transformed by a relationship with God? Is that
2: Well, I mean, before sort of dragging God into this too quickly, I think what he's dealing with in that episode is profoundly painful to him. And the grieving, for Augustine, the cleaner your relations are, the more you've allowed someone in your life, the more integrity your grief's going to have. It's not going to be mixed up with other kinds of things. Basically, it's not going to be mixed up with guilt. One of the things he says in in book 4 that's really important is that uh, he says there's something natural in the soul that if we're shown love something in us wants to love back. And if we don't love back or we love back too late that's a really a torment. What he tells us about the relationship with this guy and and he's he's like 16, you know, he's coming back from, I think, Medora, and he's back in his hometown, which he really doesn't like that much. It's really his father's hangout, and he has a real problem with his father. But if you listen to the way that he describes his relationship with this friend, it's like a lot of his relationship at the time. He's charismatic and very persuasive, and he assumes he can basically make his friends into the people he wants them to be. He's a manichae at the time. He's not a Catholic, and he's very smart. And he wants company in the way that he sees the world. And so he convinces this guy basically to sort of agree with him pretty much about everything. And the guy falls sick, and his family baptizes him. And when he wakes back up, Augustine starts making fun of the baptism. And the guy looks at him kind of in horror and saying, if you want us to continue to be friends, you've got to stop it. And Augustine at that point, this is what he's describing, his younger self, just assumes that, look, when the guy's feeling a little bit better, he'll just bring them back into line. So here's Augustine's problem. How do you mourn somebody who basically you have spent most of the relationship turning into an image of yourself? And this is actually a person, the one evidence that we have that the person really loved Augustine is actually the rebuke that he gave of Augustine. It's like that's when his own voice comes out. So Augustine's actually really struggling with the idea that most of his relationships are theatrical. That is, they have to do with how he stages the people around him rather than how they really are. And this is why he will just run he'll, you know, how how does he finally get away from this grief? He just changes the scenery. And the changed scenery, goes to Clars, is more diverting, but it really doesn't help him. So the grief becomes something actually that it's offering him a truth. But his worry is, I think the way a lot of, you know, sometimes people worry about this, his worry has been so locked up in himself that he really hasn't noticed other people. Or he doesn't notice them until they're gone or they're no longer reachable to him. And then it's too late. That's actually what he's describing there. And what he says about God is, in book four, is God was too much of a fiction for him. For God to be more consoling than the friend that he had lost. And actually, this is important. I mean, Augustine's really aware that honestly there's no way around it. Our views of God are fictional; they all are fictional. It's just that some fictions serve better than others at certain points in our life and And this one he had nothing really to return to. He had no you know he can use this language of you know God's eternal and never loses what God loved. but he has really his understanding of what power would have that sort of enjoyment is too corrupted, really, to help him in this situation. So he's not trying to get beyond grief there. He's actually trying to understand it. He say, he says that at this point, his life had become a great question of magno quaestio. And he takes that question into everything that follows in the Confessions.
6: Magno quaestio is a much cooler way of saying Greek question, <laughs> first, of, first of all. Yeah, it's interesting, like, everybody's idea of God being fictional. Is that the word you use? Yeah. Uh, Jay. No, I'm just kidding, Jim. Uh,
2: Hey, I'll go with Jay.
6: (laughs) Yeah, but there's also something that unites everybody's understanding of, of God, which is also fascinating. Sometimes when I've grappled with these ideas, I've always come back to this idea that there's this unified idea. I mean, okay, maybe, I don't know much about Shintoism, but even in What little I know about Buddhism seems to have a lot of the same themes as the three major religions. Whether it's a monotheistic religion or not, the idea of what God or gods are remains very much the same, right? The only difference being if you can attribute some physicality to God or not. But the understanding of what God is, what God does... It seems to me, in my limited understanding, that it's pretty universally accepted as the same kind of thing. Am I wrong in saying that?
2: Well, what's your understanding of the universal understanding
6: of uh, Well, Tara, what do you want to say? Sorry, uh, before I answer
5: that. I would take issue with that, just because I think that, I mean, number one, within Buddhism, Buddhism is like a complicated one, because within sort of strict Orthodox Buddhist texts, there's not necessarily a place that needs to be occupied by a god which is why it's a it's a system that I think is amenable to a lot of atheists and but, but if you
3: strip it hinduism down
6: what is
5: something hinduism is something that I think is pretty radically different actually in their conception of god and gods i think that the big monotheistic religions judaism and islam and christianity god is so remarkably similar that i often make jokes about the fact that we keep fighting with each other because it's it seems so preposterous because the things seem so similar well that's Um, what makes
6: people fight by the way anything similar if you notice you know the closer you are to some like arabs and jews pretty similar okay we'll fight uh you know um uh, yeah Yeah. the irish
5: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. small differences yeah I don't think that it's accurate to say that, because I, I know just from, especially from studying like Indian philosophy and Indian religion, I was shocked at how, how radically different it was. And if you want to say it's similar in the sense that there's something bigger that created things, like you could say that they all have that in common, but I feel like the similarities actually kind of stop about there.
6: But that's all there needs to be. That is what I was going to say. And I think, like, if you boil it down to its very essence, that's what God is, something bigger that created things. Like, you can then attribute your own little, um... Well,
1: I'm not just... I'm enjoying that definition of God. (laughs) Something bigger that created things.
6: But that is is God. That is the essence of what God is. Then you can put your little add-ons, you know, or... uh, I think God's the figure that created god. things, and you know He hates the Amalekites. Hates you know, Amalekites. <laughs> you can add your little, <laughs> to it, you know, but but really we're working at the same core, you know. But uh, the essence, the core understanding that the whole universe seems to have the God is to relate to this big invisibility, sometimes represented by a statue, but still the statue isn't the God you know it's still this big invisible force that created it's a big invisible creator that's god then like i said you can put your accoutrements to it you know you can customize god uh based on what works for you but that is the core essence that we're
3: all on On, nobody's saying you know what god is god is feathers not if you're some kind of uh pantheist right i mean i'm I'm not that familiar with uh, pantheism but i don't know if you want to say something like you know oh it's just a metaphor for like totality of things that exist in the world then in some sense he's the creator right because he is everything but creator seems to imply that there is one time where there was this creator guy and then uh, there's a time after that where there's this thing that he created and if you identify god with everything those two times just collapse into one
5: Right. yeah, I feel like the question of intentionality is really important. Like not all religions throughout human history have agreed about well, yeah, I mean not all have had exactly a creator the way the monotheistic religions conceive of a creator that's like the watchmaker you know in in that older. It's like a large intelligence that is intentionally going about making something. That's definitely not something that you find universally in religions. I feel like, especially in like older localized shamanistic religions, like there was probably something which mushed some stuff together at some point. But I feel like the conceptions are so, so different that I often, I sort of like, recoil at even using the term God to talk about all of them, because I I feel like we automatically we cast everything that we look at in the light of the Judeo-Christian conception of God when we start using that word. And I feel like some of them are so radically different that it doesn't really hold up very well. I don't remember why we started talking about this, though. What did this have to do with (laughs) Augustine?
3: I, feel like, I think it was relating to, yeah, Jim was talking about how all types of God were fictions, and then Danny was riffing on
5: Oh, yes. yes. Okay, mm-hmm. yes.
2: Well, I mean, and Augustine actually at the beginning of the Confessions has a really unsettled notion of God, right? I mean, the soul is made to, well, praise God, though I think that word is going to be misleading in this context. Gary Wills translates La Dara, the Latin for praise is appraise, our soul is basically built to understand the good that's beyond conception. But there's never any congr- there's never any harmony between who we are and what we're judging. So it's not mm-hmm. entirely clear that and this when I say that God's a fiction, of course, I don't mean fiction in contrast to literal truth. I mean the way in which there's certain forms of truth seeking that inevitably are going to require some imaginative capacity from the truth seeker and augustine is relating to a creator god Dan, i do like your definition though a big thing that creates things and hates the amalekites i'll I'll try that (laughs) at at some point but but augustine's creator is and the the metaphor is there's just a mismatch i mean how do you invite god within the house of your soul i mean it's just a disastrous you know attempt to fit it's going to wreck your house and confuse god and you know he never really i think moves away from this idea that um We're really trying to relate to something that is, strictly speaking, impossible to relate to. Uh, And in that sense, we, we, we are necessarily in the realm of fiction, creativity of our own.
3: That's an interesting move, because I always, I mean, this sort of relates back to what we were saying about stoicism. Augustine seems to sort of make a kind of, you think that he's going to make some kind of stoic move when he says, oh, we have to kind of chase the infinite or something like that, but then he sort of returns to the world. it seems like in what, in what James is saying is that no, it's a, oh, well, you know all our worldly concerns are finite, we have to attune ourselves to some kind of infinite. but then again, we're, our capacity to visualize the infinite and to access God in that way is also limited. so we're stuck with the world again. Um, I don't know if that's, uh, <laughs> that's completely wrong, but if that, that'll seem like an interesting move.
2: That's the, you know, Augustine's connection with Platonism is, is largely through Plotinus. And right. for Plotinus, the, the divine is not a creator. And as far as salvation goes, there's nowhere to go from the world. <laughs> the world's not different. There's not another place that's just more immaterial. I mean, the, the natural world is the manifestation, paradoxical or the absolute. So, yeah, particularly in the Confessions, I think Augustine's more in the mood to see the eternity of his finite life, you know, rather than waiting for some sort of grand, you know, historical resolution, which for someone like a Platonist would be misguided to think of in any case.
3: I was just completely thinking about how to think about what Jim said in the context of what I so is something like you see the infinite in fleeting moments or something, some sort of horrible slogan like that. It's not that you retreat from the world and look at the infinite. You see the infinite and in finite finitude itself or something like
1: that so I was, I was going to say though there are lots of occasions where augustine says things which would open up at the end of the sort of nietzschean critique of being anti-world and anti-life so for instance in book four chapter 12 if material things please you then praise god for them but turn back your love upon him who made them lest in the things that please you you displease him If souls please you, then love them in God, because they are mutable in themselves, but in him firmly established. You seek happiness of life in the land of death, and it is not there. This idea and the whole idea of pleasure-seeking being a sort of land of death is is recurring. So again, for instance, in Book 6, at the end of Chapter 11... These things went through my mind, and the wind blew one way and then another, and tossed my heart this way and that. Time was passing, and I delayed to turn to the Lord. From day to day I postponed life in you, but I did not postpone the death that daily I was dying in myself. I was was in love with the idea of happiness, yet I feared it where it was, and fled away from it in my search for it. The plain truth is that I thought I should be impossibly miserable if I had to forego the embraces of a woman and I did not think of your mercy as a, as a healing medicine for that weakness. So, the reason why I'm bringing, bringing this up is because there's all sorts of strong language that Augustine uses against pleasure, uh, um, against sexual pleasure, and then the question is why, and I think there's a sort of sustained um, argument in the Confessions for that. Um, ultimately, the answer is integrity. So, the answer is about being you know scattered to the winds versus being a unified self so for instance so in book <laughs> 10 chapter 29 for bicontinence we are collected and bound up into unity within ourselves, whereas we have been scattered abroad in multiplicity the scattering abroad in multiplicity is when we are focused upon worldly pleasures that to me is an interesting and really profound argument for because you might think and I think especially today contemporary re- readers will be less sympathetic to what seemed like aversion to the body, pleasure, aversion to the worldliness. It seems like there's a real argument here. Uh, I
6: blame it all on the Catholic Church. (laughs) I really do. I think it's just uh, they all grappled with this idea for so many years of, you know, whether or not you can enjoy sex.
1: Um, what about this argument about and Jim can maybe correct that or give it more n- nuance if i'm if I'm not right about, but w- what I take as as the argument about the unity of the self and the sense in which our love of something permanent, our love of God is ultimately necessary for that, as opposed to a love love strictly being stuck with attachments to ephemeral things that pass away. Is that yeah. argument not convincing in some sense?
2: That's an argument that you're you're trying to get some understanding of why he has some antipathy towards sexual attachments, because that would be love for the ephemeral.
1: Yeah, and, and pleasure in general. It's not just sexual attachments, but he you know he runs through a whole list of <laughs> pleasures, yeah. including including you know circus games and.
2: Well, it's true, and I, and I and I have to admit, I find it a bit tedious that list of temptations. <laughs> um, the, the sexual stuff, I think, is really deep for him. And, and he certainly didn't work it out. I think it ends up as a bit of a mess. I mean, I guess I would qualify that as I, I don't feel like really in a position of like, you know, having really, you know, unpacked the deep mystery of sexuality. I sort of, I feel like I know any better than he does how it all works because he's, he's struggling with the complexity of human attachments and the way sexuality can be as much um, an attempt at intimacy that's really more theatrical than not and that causing a great deal of pain and confusion. But let me see just let me throw a couple of ideas out, not in any great length, and we can kind of talk about what we want to talk about. First of all, you have to realize that um, the ideal of the philosophy for the ancient world isn't teaching philosophy at university. It's really a therapeutic model. And the therapy is, basically, the world sucks and it's going to screw you up, and you really need a training so that you actually can live with some kind of integrity, decency and insight in this world. And honestly, most of what ordinary life consists of isn't going to help you. So there's already an aesthetic imperative for the philosophical life. Like the idea that you shouldn't spend a lot of time with with your sexual life and your family life was simply like you're not gonna have a whole lot of time for reflection or contemplation if that's what you're all caught up in. So that, that's part of what Augustine is talking about. And in book eight, you know, when he talks about his so-called conversion, it really is, in some ways it is, it's trying to get over his sex life. There's no requirement that you have to embrace celibacy to follow a path of Christian philosophy. But Augustine at that point says to himself, well, I really want the higher, the cooler, the more impressive option. (laughs) And at the beginning of book eight, when he says that he is almost there, You know, he's got the more or less the right conception of the eternal. He's got Catholic friends. He's over Mannequinism. He's, you know, pretty much ready to walk away from his life as a professor. He says the one thing that is sticking to him is that, well, the Latin is really hard to translate, not because it's so fancy, because of the phrase he uses. He says, I will translate it for you. But this is the Latin, said hook tenasitere or conligabar ex femina. If you translated that, it says, well, but up to this point, tenaciter really tightly, conligabar, I was really being tied. And then the phrase he uses is ex femina. Well, the way that's usually translated is I'm still really tied to a woman. Uh, that is, he's still got this wife coming and he's had a mistress in between and he had gotten rid of the other woman. So at one level, that seems to be what he's saying. But that's actually not what the Latin says. He says, I'm really tied up ex femina, like ex nihilo, like ex libris, like ex cathedra. That's origin. What he's saying is, I'm still tied up with my origins in a woman. I'm still very mortal. But at this point, he has yet to discover, and he won't until the end of the book, what God's relationship to mortality is all about. Right now, he thinks of it as an antithetical relationship and everything about sexuality reminds him of his ties to mortality, and he thinks at the beginning of Book 8, that's what's standing in his way. By the time he finishes Book 8, I think he has a different picture. But that sexuality, it, it's, its yes, it's an antipathy toward the body, in the sense that the body is this partial thing, always needing to be fed and cared for, that eventually dies, no matter how much you take care of it. That seems to be an obstacle to understanding something eternal, right? But that's actually, I think, not where... So the idea that you then just go for something eternal and leave the the temporal behind is, in human life, practically speaking, only a negative ideal. Because the eternal doesn't present itself like another object on the table. It just means you're going to try to devalue everything that you normally love. Augustine came to think of that. I mean, it's like the whole tortoise-dog question that Dan started us out on. It's like, don't not love your dog because your tortoise lasts longer. Right? I mean, do we love our kids? Because if, if you knew ahead of time that one of your kids is going to live 10 years, the other one's going to live 50, would you put all your time into loving the one that's going to live longer? Because somehow maybe that... maybe
6: you should focus on the one you have less time with.
2: That actually tends to be what we normally do, and for Augustine, that's a real spiritual intuition. That's the part of us that knows that really what's of value is really being veiled by time. But we can't get to that value simply by being resentful that we live in time.
1: It, it, it seems like, though, for him, we have to, again, transform those attachments. So it's not just the body attachments, the sexual and bodily pleasure that's dangerous, it's it's attachments to souls to souls as well. You know, again, if souls please you, then love them in God because they are immutable in themselves, right. but in him firmly established. And that strategy, again, for dealing with grief and loss seems... Well, again, it's, it's, it's still a question to me whether he's arguing for a retreat from those attachments or if, you know, as this, what I just read, seems to suggest, you transform those attachments through your relationship with God.
2: No, I, I think that's right, but like, like say, in, in, the, in the arena of sexuality, the transformation he's talking about, I mean, to put it really kind of concisely, is moving from having partners which are objects of appetite to moving to having a partner which is really an object of contemplation, hmm. so, and, and the problem with, look, it's not like appetites aren't bad, they're just blind, right? So an object of appetite could always allow for substitution. So he sends his wife to Africa, and she really was a wife for him. And he says, to this is just about lust. So he picks up with another woman, which must have been, frankly, hell in the household. He's got his 13-year-old son, his mother, and he's let the mother of his son go back to Africa, and he brings another woman into the household. I mean, that I wouldn't have wanted to be in that household. But really what he comes to understand is, look, as we move to this transformation, we actually start seeing people, not simply seeing them as substitutable means for gratifying our sense of wholeness, or rather unreflective sense of wholeness. At the same time, you you see people for what they are. You see their beauty. You're also going to be reminded that that this is not a position of control. So you are opening yourself up to liability, to, to vulnerability, to loss. But this is where the faith comes in. I mean, you know, love of God, as I've been been trying to say, is is really not love of peculiar kind of objects. It's becoming to understand the part that's in you that has the courage to see things as they are, which has primarily to do with their beauty, but it also has to do with understanding that, you know, their beauty in in an arena where you can't simply fix things and turn them into objects of, of use and appetite. That's his real struggle when it comes to women you know, why I think he's so screwed up in that case is that he really firmly distrusts his attachments to women, that they overwhelm him. He finds it easier, I think, relating to men, because frankly, he's he's able to buy and outdo them on professional terms. With women, no. I mean, there's just something more basic about truth that they convey to him. And and honestly, it freaks him out.
3: So this sort of whole thing about seeing the kind of loving god in the in the right kind of way is really means you don't want to love god you want to love beauty or the infinite or something like that and we talked about transformation of attachments is it that you reorient yourself with respect to people like you treat, you change your attitude towards things right you treat, you don't treat people as a means to an end i don't want to say you you treat people as ends in themselves as that makes it sound a bit <laughs> say sound a bit Kantian, but yeah. uh, as souls, I guess, might be a better way to say it, right? As sort of beautiful souls or something like that, as infinite souls.
1: Yes, <laughs> I mean, what does it mean to say, see, Jim, you were saying, this love of God is related to seeing things as they actually are. Is, uh, mm-hmm. And I wonder what that means is exactly. Is it to see them? Is it to see people as ensouled? Or I, I also thought, as a did, and sort of Kantian, terms is it to see people as having their own autonomous <laughs> subjectivities and respecting it's that as ends in themselves as opposed to means to gratification what is it that we are uh, we are seeing more accurately or more more honestly
2: I yeah I mean yeah you know, th- th- that question to me is sort of the philosophical struggle but I think seeing people as different is really at the heart of that and
1: as not replaceable substitutes for our repetitive, yeah,
2: okay. We're we're individuated expressions of the divine. Mm. And so when God becomes Jesus, it's not some kind of, like, Kant thought, some sort of universal principle of humanity that gets exemplified in Jesus. No, no, actually, it, it was this particular person. He lived, he died, he's gone. And if you want to understand, like, well, boy, it would have been more effective if you had sort of gone more universal in that. Well, I mean, you know, here I think in really understanding and coming to see the differences around you, loving one person well actually helps you to love other people well, and there is really a sense in which it doesn't get caught up in too narrow a vision. But yeah, I mean, I mean, we were talking before about you know notions of God and and, and whether they're the same and whether they're different. You know, that's a hard one. I mean, I do tend to think there's two pulls within the psyche for fulfillment. One is more impersonal and one is more interpersonal. Augustine tended to translate the impersonal stuff into the interpersonal stuff. That's why his conception of logic is of knowledge is so tied up with the conception of love. Love for him is actually a way of seeing. It's a way of seeing things that are that simply haven't been turned into some kind of private possession yeah. you know, that ultimately feeds itself that's an illusion. We don't exist other than in our relationships to being. So trying to sort of turn those relationships into something that are possessable and controllable is ultimately self-defeating.
3: It's very intriguing because it seems that you have to like tr- whenever we traditionally think about like dualism, right? So there's immaterial soul and material body. We think about some kind of what, some some sort of variation on being able to access a transcendent realm. Yeah. And He seems to sort of invert that in a certain kind of way, where our material practices, the way we go about our lives, can allow us to access the soul through our sort of. I don't want to say our sort of mode of being in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's, that, again, it makes it sound kind of existential, but... Uh, it's, uh, well, it's, it, it's fair. Yeah, that is an interesting connection. I mean, it's like sort of existentialism in a way. It's sort of, I always thought about that as being radically other to Augustine, right? With all this talk about ground, ungroundedness and, you know, oh, there is no God and we have to sort of change our way of life Constantly, but there seems to be—he seems to be sort of uh, taught, uh, sort of going on some existentialist themes. Um,
2: well, you know, Camus, Camus wrote his dissertation on Augustine.
3: So yeah, there, there seem to be a connection there. I mean, I know that they are like existential Christians, like people like Tillich and so on. I didn't expect to see it, you know, Augustine, but it seems to be there.
5: I have a sort of a question, I think, for Jim. So first off. I am sympathetic I think I'm more sympathetic than most modern readers to Augustine but I I do think that your reading of him is maybe a little bit more generous than I would be willing to grant him in terms of his relationship to women. Sure. And I'm sort of I was sort of curious because I hadn't thought much about this until listening to these podcasts. I mean, I know like within feminist circles with especially within Christianity there's a lot of concern over Augustine and I've always sort of understood him as being he sort of was a turning point in, in the attitude towards women within the church. That's been the understanding I've sort of encountered. But I was suddenly curious about what the sort of situation was in terms of women. I know, I know a little bit about women in the Roman Empire, but like what his, I don't even, I want to say like angst, like in, like the German sense, like this really deep, almost terror at women and what women do, to like his, his need for sex is clearly disturbing, really disturbing to him and what it does to him and the need that it meets is quite disturbing to him. But that seems to have really touched a chord in the world that he was in and in the Roman Catholic Church and I was kind of wondering do you know anything about what was going on historically that he did touch such a chord or that he did contribute so much. I would say that he contributed to a really anti-woman culture within the church.
2: I think that the misogyny has been a great theme within, I mean, great in the sense of big, not in the sense of good. A great theme within the Western tradition of religion and philosophy, and Augustine is certainly part of the story. And it is important that We not give overly generous readings of this tradition so that we become blind to the way that misogyny is actually distorted its capacity to well its it's conception of of reasoning itself and Augustine I think in some ways had the misfortune of being insanely influential (laughs) Uh, and so everything that he worked out which he wouldn't necessarily have wanted to be dogma gets magnified in importance as far as, you know, his misogyny goes, and he has it. And I, look, I think the if we're going to like look for really sins to be offended by in the confessions, well, it sure as hell is not the pair. But sending his partner away in the way that he did and the way that he describes it and what he does afterwards, I mean, honestly, what an asshole, right? So, Africa I mean, is
6: beautiful. Let's give him that. I mean... There's so much unbelievable wildlife. Uh, the sights are breathtaking. Back yeah, to you, Jim. <laughs>
2: well, I, you know, I mean, she actually—I think, you know, she and Adi, she actually shows up in his confession as the figure of Continentia, and not some sort of like uh, ridiculous vision of being free from sexuality, but a kind of she represents a kind of integrity for him that isn't defined against having children, loving others, putting herself out there, and. uh the way he describes it, it was really—it's like Adam losing his Eve, and actually, he absolutely uses the Genesis image. Uh, although this time, the the parting is a wounding, you know, where in Genesis, you know, everybody is, nobody's harmed by it. Now, as far as uh, so, I, I guess so. So one response to your question is: We would do well to take very seriously where his struggles with sexuality and gender are clearly not resolved. Now, as far as how he implements his doctrine, he's very insistent on the notion that there is no difference when it comes to the image of God between male and female. yay, that's good, okay, but here's the other part first of all, he he goes out of his way to I think give a very distorted reading of Genesis one. I think it's one twenty-seven. Where you know God created human beings in God's image, male and female. He created them. If you were reading this without a prejudice, you'd say, "Oh, woo! The image of God is both male and female." Augustine's like, "No, no, no!" It sort of changed the subject once the male and female are introduced. He still has the idea, uh, and it's very, it's dismally, I think, pervasive, that although human beings. Um, male and female, are equally an image of God, men are more naturally oriented towards the eternal sapientia, wisdom. Women are more tied to knowledge of changeable things. Now, that has fueled a lot of stupidity, politically and philosophically, historically. What's interesting is uh, Augustine actually ironically spends most of his genius finding God in the very thing that he is ambivalent about. <laughs> because you can say, look, you know, the, uh, I, I don't know if I'd hold him up. is sort of an ideal. Of, he's certainly not a feminist. He wouldn't even conceive. He wouldn't be able to even conceive of that notion. And the way that women, his wife, his mother, play into the confessions is problematic. But also, I don't think you can understand the confessions apart from that struggle. And so, and I think he, he rings both a blessing and a curse from the way that he has um, tried to understand his relationship to the women in his life. But he's a big source. I mean, you know, he, he's continued, he follows that tradition. I mean, you know, what I always found very problematic about the church teaching is the idea of the male priesthood. What yeah. is it about having a penis that makes you particularly <laughs> geared towards mediating the sacred? Mm-hmm. Actually, Augustine talks about his relationship to women, especially his mother. I mean, the relationship to his mother, that whole scene in Ostia, when they (laughs) visit eternity together, that actually is a sacramental moment. And that's the moment when his mother enters into the Trinity. So there are ways in which I think he, I mean, this is a very Augustinian point. We learn the most from that which we think we have decisively rejected. And that's actually very true in his relationship to women in this Thai ex feminine that he's been struggling with.
5: Wasn't Ostia, wasn't that like an important part of the Divine Comedy? I feel like, I I feel like did Dante Dante did something with that with Ostia.
2: Uh, yeah. that probably in the Paradiso, which I, yeah, I read through.
5: Anyway, that's no, that's helpful. I think you're right that you couldn't understand the confessions apart from his relationships to women. That is definitely true. And I had had this thought before that maybe part of the problem for Augustine is, which is, I think you touched on this, he may or may not have wanted to have been turned into the dogma of the church itself. Like, he wow. he really was adopted after that and by the church, and that's not necessarily something that was super helpful. But, yeah.
4: Regarding your question, it remains interesting to me, or rather it remains an open question to me, whether there's a true contempt for women or if he has this kind of hatred of... Women causing him to sin in some sense, you know, yeah. of the woman being in a, a path to either sin or damnation or...
5: Yeah, I think that's true. I think he, like a lot of religious people, though, if he's like, he strikes me as somebody who, if you were to say that to him, hey, is it women or is it the way that women lead you to sin? His official answer would be, oh, it's the sin, it's the sin, it's definitely the sin. But he, in practice he comes off as very hateful of women. And I feel sure. like you can yeah. say officially, I hate the sin, but...
4: <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And so, Mr., uh, uh, well, Jim, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the, the point about um, uh, men more oriented toward the um, these more eternal things, women more oriented toward these more temporal things, you know, that was the interesting point that, that seemed to be the first thing that kind of stepped out of something that, you know, I didn't think could be understood simply in that vein of, he's got a sin problem, basically, uh, uh, you know, that interpretation. Now, I think that ultimately, I mean, so at that time, I mean, let's get real here. I mean, that's true just because the women, you know, weren't getting the education, right? So, you, you know, you're generally not thinking about these things if you haven't been, you know, yeah. aren't reading a bunch of books. Although I... We can, there's some natural tendency in humans probably to think about these things, you know. But, I mean, it's, the books are kind of a stimulant for that, perhaps. Yeah.
5: Well, I think, too, one of the things, I, I didn't read the Confessions. I'd read, like, excerpts of it and listened to the podcast. And I was sort of curious about whether he, did he have just one son? Is that all the kids he had?
2: Yeah, a at artist. And he died when, boy died when he was 16,
5: Oh. And does Augustine seem to have been attached
2: to him at all? Oh, yeah, tremendously so.
5: Okay, okay, interesting.
2: Huh. In fact, she, she when she goes back to Africa, she leaves Adiodotus in the care of his father.
5: Oh, okay. And that's when he takes a mistress.
2: Yes. Because <laughs> exactly. that
5: seemed like really good timing. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You gotta do what you gotta do. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, the, the, Takes a
1: mistress point. while he's waiting to get married too. Yeah. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah.
5: Oh. Huh.
3: I think one of the things about the the whole are women sort of means to in the sense of oh are they just sort of objects with uh, you know do they are they simply sort of these vessels which allow us to sin versus you know conceiving of them as independent human beings even if the whole thing we were talking about do you hate women or do you just hate what they make you do the second option is not really that much of a cop out in the sense of you're still treating women as an object right you're still mm-hmm. treating uh, treating them as you know they are people only in so far as they have an effect on me rather than they are people with autonomous desires or whatever yeah yeah um, That's a good point. but uh, yeah i think yeah Augustine has definitely given me a different perspective on Augustine, even though I already, already I, I was sort of pleasantly surprised. I, one of the things that I was sort of confused about, which I might want to ask Jim about, about the, the whole question of being, right? I mean, I've talked about existentialism, um, before, and I don't want to get too much into the technicalities of someone who was not the subject of this, uh, discussion, but the thing about God being defined as being that you were talking about slightly earlier. I wonder if you could expand on that slightly, because I found that very... Interesting.
2: I can expand on it slightly. I can give you sort of the, the basic idea. We'll I mean, take it. I mean, Augustine's... His philosophical picture is ontological. It has to do with the logic of being. And there are two primary categories for talking about reality. This, and it's, it's very different than Plotinus, the, the, his inspiration from Platonism. God is being in its perfection, no change. Mm-hmm. This is good that is always been, always will be, always is perfect. Creation ex nihilo is one expression of the freedom <laughs> of divine generativity. The idea is that being doesn't fill a need in creating beings. So you've basically got two marbles to play with here, being and nothingness. Mm-hmm. Now, the alternative, and it's very mind-blowing, and I won't go into detail, and I can't say I profoundly understand it, is like for someone like Titus, reality and being aren't the same thing. They're not antithetical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> being is real, but reality is not exhausted mm-hmm. by being. Then you get a very kind of complicated anthropology. Augustine's, here's where I think it becomes psychologically perplexing for Augustine, the ontology does. You know, basically God's your parent. Being is your parent. Well, most of us, we at some point in our psychological process, we have to individuate from our parents. And we do this by actually having other people around us that we use to define ourselves at least in contradistinction to our parents if not in opposition to them, I mean, we all have different i think you know versions of, of adolescence, but having God with your as your parent it really really sets a problem i mean how do you how do you establish your difference from simply that which is it looks like you have to embrace well nothing was the other possibility, and actually, this is where I think the stuff with women gets very complicated because really. What are your choices? Your mundane origin is ex semina. We've all come out of a body of a woman, at least up to this point. That may change, you knows. Your mother gives you your birth; she also gives you your death. What does God, as parent, do? Well, he, you know, he or she or the transcending of gender, God pulls you out of the nihil, the nihilum, the nothingness. Those are very different notions of, of orientation, and I, and I think the Thinking of God as being, and and the only alternative God is nothing, you're going to define a form of becoming that's perpetually trying to resolve itself into what it cannot possibly be, which is perfection or nothingness, and and so a lot of Augustine's psychological language is actually trying to work out the complex inheritance the soul has as being the child of God.
3: Hmm. i mean that's that's absolutely fascinating yes. <laughs> in, yes, in so is. many ways, um, as was, uh, sort of I could, the discussion of being and nothing and becoming is virtually identical to that found about, about I don't know about a thousand years later in Hegel's science of logic for one, and obviously the sort of the reference that uh, the, the, the existentialist who I was going to bring up who also had a lot of medieval influences was Heidegger um, and right. he talked about,
2: right. he read a lot of augustine and, and wrote about Augustine's stuff on time
3: right. I mean, Dun Scottus is, I think, more his his cup of tea. But in the case of our discussion of being right now, I think the relevant bit is to sort of talk about what does it mean to be. Is one of the relevant questions that Heidegger asks, right? And uh, right. in this case, I think your answer is something like God, I guess, in some way. Whenever right. something is, is, is a mode of or what has some kind of relationship to God. God is the kind of universal genus of being. Whenever something is, it is part of God. Yeah. I don't want to say part, but you see what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. But the reality, I think in this in this sort of broader onto definition of being, what you called, when Plotinus distinguished between the reality and being, I think what we mean is being is reality in the broad sense, in the broader sense. I mean, mm-hmm. in the sense of like being is the most general possible thing for some like, it's the definition of what all things that all things all entities have. I mean, I this is the kind of Heideggerian circle that I'm getting into, but I, I'm sort of gesturing at what Augustine might have to say about these questions.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's maybe maybe not a hole that we want to get into right now, but it's certainly one of think, the most fascinating yeah. areas of Augustine for me.
2: Well, and actually, I, I think it's a big hole. You know, and this is where I, I, I think the way that we talk about philosophy in, in the secular and sacred terms r- really isn't all that helpful. Because, the, the, you know, the, the you know, problematic and the problems of ontology really run throughout, you know, both the theological and the philosophical traditions. And I'll be honest. I mean, you know, I, I've learned much with Augustine. He's been a great teacher. He will continue to be. He's much smarter than I am. I think this ontology... This ontological framework is really a black hole. Ultimately, it is going to encourage the view that relationships are illusory, that they need to be resolved into substantives, And that's a problematic view, that's for sure.
3: i sorry, I didn't quite understand what you meant by relationships would have to be
2: resolved resolved
3: into substantives.
2: Well, so what is... Well, for Augustine, God. What is not God? Nothing. What's in between? Something that would relate, would establish a relationship between being and nothingness, becoming. But what right. is becoming? Becoming. Well, being or nothingness. So, that's what I mean. Is, you know. Actually, I think what Augustine is moving towards, and at least in the Confessions less so in his later works when he's got eschatology more on on his mind is that um we really are he's really you know becoming is a form of being which means that time is not something that gets resolved history is not something that gets resolved flesh is not something that gets resolved it is what it is right. now I, i'm not saying that i can't show you here's where you know he he sums it all up that way But I think that's where the thought in the Confessions is coming. I mean, it's very evident in the book on time to me when he's talking about the relationship between eternity and time, and he basically comes to the conclusion that seeing the eternal God as simply a resolution of time's movement in and out of being is not right. That there's some forms of imperfection that are really not defined against perfection life in the flesh is one of those things.
3: Hmm. He seems to think the whole practice of ontology and the way that you defined it, of sort of talking about grounding everything in terms of some kind of universal, and sort of shrinking all the particular things that you find in the world uh, relative to these sort of big categories like being and nothing and becoming and whatever, Um, they seem to sort of shrink the world in a way, they seem to lessen it, and he doesn't seem to want that. I mean, that's the sort of... What I took from what you said?
2: Well, in the sort of the Patinian picture, you've got basically three marbles, Kublai sees You have the absolute, which I called reality. You have nous, which I called being, also intelligence. And you have tsuke. You, you have the soul, but not as an individual thing. Mm-hmm. The soul, as a hypothesis, that is a, something that stands on its own, is the relationship between being and reality. That's for someone like Plotinus, Is like nature, the natural world is not something you escape from. The natural world describes the non-difference between the three aspects of reality, soul, mind, and absolute, and also expresses their distinctness. And then you get into all kinds of complexities about what, what is it you're doing when you're realizing it, when, you, when you're realizing yourself, when you're trying to know God, when you're trying to come to self-knowledge. Those are all different paths for Plotinus. With Augustine, the soul's trying to get back to God. But the way I, what I'm suggesting is the way he sets that up, and the lean way of doing it is like you're trying to move from something, you know, from nothingness towards being. That's not really something that is resolved. It's not that the creation isn't the means to God. <laughs> the creation is an expression of being itself. It isn't something that needs to be turned into God, right? Hmm. I mean, and he does struggle with that a lot in his uh-huh. discussion of sin in the confessions.
3: So when we talk about becoming, and you were talking about this, this whole thing about becoming the absolute, is the, Augustine doesn't want that because that seems to imply that the world is kind of resolving itself into some kind of perfect unity and sort of going back to God, like God's creations becoming him again.
2: I think the irony, the psychological irony that Augustine keeps coming back to, and, and it has a metaphysical underpinning, is the reason why we're having such a hard time as human beings is that we keep asking or trying to take something we've already been given. We keep trying to earn, grab, possess the love of God. Actually, we've already been given it. And so so much about the religious life for him is the restlessness that we go through towards accepting who it is we are and who we are to one another. I mean, I can give you one, I think, really stunning example and it. And this is where you really have to keep in mind his family life. When he uh, struggles in Book Eight with because he's two wills, you know, one a will to celibacy, the other a will to no thank you celibacy. The resolution that he gets when he hears the Tola Lege voice, the voice of the child, which is significant—it's the voice of a child—which takes him, encourages him to pick up the Book of the Apostle and open up and read. And he reads Romans 13 to 14. and I'll, It's the second part that's important to him. Put on Jesus Christ, your dominum, your master, and make no provision in the flesh for its loss. And the assumption there is like, oh, God finally gave him the willpower not to have sex. I don't think so, actually. Because the trope that he uses to explain his peace of mind, is one of illumination. He said a lux securitatis really filled his soul, a light of security, of peace. So there's an illumination there. So what does he know that he didn't know before picking up that verse? And I think the answer is, well, you've been struggling with this idea that you think that you need to have the power to relate to other human beings other than through your flesh's desire for completion, that is, other than through your own selfishness, for lack of a better conception, although it's not ultimately a good conception of the self. What he's reminded of is that actually in, you know, put on Jesus Christ, your master, and we think of power and, like, you know, great will. Actually, I think what he's imagining there is having to take care of God as a child, His wife leaves him with his son. His son grew up in his household. Augustine loved that boy. He already knows what it means to take care of the flesh other than through lust. What the conversion reminds him of is you already know what you're asking to know. You've already been given what you need to be given. Becoming is not an exile from being. It is. That's what I think is really very much he is trying to work out through the confessions, that idea. And it corresponds with the fact that, look, he did not want to be a priest. He wanted to live a quiet life on his own. When he gets back to Africa, after he only spends, he doesn't like to travel, and I don't blame him. I mean, traveling in the ancient world was dangerous and uncomfortable. He only spends about five years outside of Africa. I mean, they're big five years, they're in Rome and Milan. By the time he comes back to Africa in his early 30s, his mother's dead, his best friend's dead, and he's going to lose his son within a year of being back in Africa, and he already blew it with his wife. He doesn't have an heir. He feels kind of lost. He just wants to find a quiet plot of land in which to live a quiet life. Because of his reputation, he gets drawn into being a priest. And so by the time he's uh, writing the confessions, he finally knows. He's stuck with the job. And the job is to somehow remind people that their life is the reflection of something divine. Up to this point, he just can't imagine that's going to take the form of caring for people. But then he remembers, right, and I think this is why he writes the Confessions, that, yeah, he, he already knows this knowledge. He can apply it to sort of his life as a priest. Now, I don't mean to say that he's some sort of, that there aren't really horrible things about his life that you're going to be able to find. <laughs> I, I mean, But that's actually true for most of us. It's just that there is that struggle to see the mundane as the source of the sacred. And I do mean struggle, because you can find a lot of language where he's like saying, no, thank you very much, God. Like in book 11, he's basically saying, I kind of hate time. I'd rather not have to deal with it. But he's got Mm -hmm. this idea of like, no, no, it's a gift too. The very thing that makes it it impossible for you to basically close in on yourself Mm -hmm. is actually a gift.
6: Right? Jim, do you think this was a lot of a coping mechanism for him, being that he'd lost everything in his life and he'd screwed up pretty much? He found
2: that he had to cope by finding the good in everything? You know, I think there's a conservative impulse within the psyche, within reasoning. I mean, we're always in some way trying to cope. You're trying to hold on to what it is that you think you have left. And I think that goes along with and sometimes wars against the impulse of basically leaving the garden of your conservatism or leaving the security of your sanctuary. And And you'll see both those moments represented, you know, sometimes in painful effect within Augustine's work, and certainly in the Confessions. There's a part of him that wants to turn in the wagons and just say, look, this is what's valuable. I got it. I'm going to hold on to it. And there's a part of him that says, no, my soul won't won't stand it. It's too restless. It's always going to look for the next manifestation of the divine, you know, within the world. And I think you've got both of those things. But yeah, I mean, he is a man who, unlike what he would have understood a philosopher to want, who allowed himself to take in more and more of the grief that would, you know, if you take it in, you're always going to be somewhat at odds with yourself. He starts to actually articulate a theology where he becomes to understand that that's not so bad, or it's difficult, but it would be worse having the kind of integrity that made us insensible to the world around us. That's basically his critique of philosophy. Then, that's too much geared towards coping, right, and it kind of goes back to
6: your his whole like thing with time and everything, kind of goes back to the whole Garden of Eden thing, actually, yeah. made you think of you know the old saying, "Ignorance is bliss." I never really connected it with the Garden of Eden until now, but that's oh, that, that yeah. I must have come right out of there, right. Ignorance is bliss, bliss is Eden, the tree of knowledge is the opposite of ignorance knowledge can be hell, and then from there on, the more understanding he has, the more he has to grapple with things, the more he has to contextualize things, and he has to justify things and cope with them by saying, hey, you know what, this sucks, but I guess it's good. I'm grieving, but I guess it's good. You know, it's all pretty good. And that's sort of his survival mechanism that's kind of like going back to earlier when we talked about the attachment, the illogical attachment that we have to things that die. How do we cope with that? You say, all right, well, it's good. You know, you talked about your kids and you talked about the attachment to them and this moment of you realizing your own mortality earlier. And how do you deal with that? You say, you know what? I'm not going to be with these kids forever. These kids are not going to be with me forever. We're at some point going to be parted through death. But in the meantime, this is really good. And that's how you deal with that. That's what you say, right. like, good, overwhelmingly beats out these like emotional landmines that I was talking about. Like the fact that whatever we have in the present time that we can value in our lives, anything that's currently tangible and good in this moment is the only thing we can focus on because you'll drive yourself insane worrying about A, what you don't have, and B, what you won't have. So –
1: well. Speaking of uh, time and parting, I think it's uh, time to wrap things up. <laughs> this was a great and, talk. Uh,
5: Can I ask so, one quick, yeah, really quick question? <laughs> <laughs> Jim, you mentioned three Greek terms, um, nous, sohe, and there was a third one that I think you said was the absolute?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's sometimes, it usually we will say the one, hen, in, in Greek.
5: Hen? Mm-hmm. Oh. And it's from Latinus, you said?
2: Yeah, the Aeneids.
5: Okay, cool. Thank you.
6: Jim, yep, thank so. you for your extensive knowledge on everything. I yeah. learned a lot here today. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, Jim, um, if, a lot. Uh, if people wanted to uh, learn more about your thoughts on St. Augustine, I know you've written a few books. Where right. would they start? I know your, rec- your most recent book is Parting Knowledge, Essays After Augustine, but there are a few other here. I was wondering what the, where one would start.
2: Uh, the book I actually wrote to be the most accessible, and it remains to be seen whether I succeeded, is a little book called Augustine, A Guide for the Perplexed. Okay. <laughs> uh, and and, that, and, it's, and I, meant, I wrote it to be under $20 and take less than an hour and a half to read. I mean, that was my my goal. Uh, but make that the mix but, of Augustine and Maimonides in the title yeah. there? Well, the series is A Guide for, for the Perplexed. I didn't have much of a choice on that, though I like it, and, and I think it fits Augustine pretty well. And yes, I, I'm sure they took it from Maimonides and didn't pay him for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought it.
3: I, I've got it right here, and I must say it was a good buy. Oh.
1: And wow. Amog, by the way, you have a uh, podcast as well. Is that right?
0: Oh,
3: yes, yes. Um, it's, uh, But it's, um, it's not something I wanted to plug, really. But... Oh, you don't want to plug it. Do it
1: plug. anyway, Amog. Oh,
3: Come on, peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I do a podcast with Seed uh, Derek Varn, was a guest on uh, P.E.L., and we, it's called symptomatic redness, and we talk about all sorts of things, but mainly history and politics. Oh,
6: right.
3: I should, symptomatic shoulda, redness.
6: I'm let him not plug it, huh? That was a real downer, huh? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't come on with the explicit intention of plugging. I was more... Well, no, I was, was drinking back to the in
6: i <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll check it out. It that sounds interesting. Wes, thanks again for everything. Yes, thank you, Wes. And, uh... Uh, looking forward yeah, to the next economics. episode. Can we get a yeah. spoiler on what's coming next?
1: I don't know that we're doing an after show for every episode at this
5: point. Mm. The next episode is about economics, right? Yes. Cool. That's interesting. Yes. I like that. It's
1: going to be uh, Hayek and uh, Marta Sen. So. I'll, ha- I'll have to tune into that
6: for my uh, to prep me for my new podcast, The Mostly Bull. Uh, That's, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So thanks again I'm to good everyone good. and uh, Jim, your insights were uh, yeah, were absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. yeah. thank you so much for doing this.
2: Unbelievable, Jim. Unbelievable. Thanks for inviting me, and I'll let my students know about the partially examined life. I think this is really great.
1: Great.
2: Really <laughs> great. It's a great forum. I will
6: well, be picking up a copy of your book, by the way. Uh you got me.
2: Well thank That's you. you. <laughs> get the sales up to a dozen or so. (laughs) (laughs) My mother has most of the
1: copies.
6: (laughs) Very cool. All right, everybody, have a great week. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. 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 Bye.